0: This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett.
1: Welcome back to Cultural Debris. You should be proud of my great restraint in not purchasing not only one but two vintage Globe Warnicky barrister bookcases. I'm in a bit of a wall-space crunch and honestly didn't know where I would put them. It's for the best, but dear listener, it was hard. Do you like ex-library books? I'm not talking about a book that has been owned by someone else, like a private library book. I love a good used book but I'm talking about a book that's been in the public stacks with library stamps and marks and maybe even a library card glued down. With some exceptions, I avoid them if at all possible. Alas, a recent online purchase arrived only for it to be an ex-library copy. The book is fairly scarce and I didn't pay a lot, so I've de it as best I can. Sometimes it just has to do. Pardon me while I plug just a thing or two for a moment. If you could leave a five star rating and review, it would be most appreciated. It would only take you a moment. Please consider also supporting the Cultural Debris Patreon. Any amount helps. There's a link in show notes. And don't forget about the upcoming Cultural Debris excursion to Genoa this October. Drop me an email for details at culturaldebrispodcast at gmail.com. I can share photos of the lovely bed and breakfast we are staying in, as well as an itinerary of our time there. This is the sort of trip you'll be talking about for years to come. Our poem comes from the bard himself. Sonnet 98 From you I have been absent in the spring... When proud-pied April, dressed in all his trim, Hath put a spirit of youth in everything, That heavy Saturn laughed and leaped with him. Yet nor the lays of birds, nor the sweet smell Of different flowers in odor and in hue Could make me any summer story tell, Or from their proud lap pluck them where they grew, Nor did I wonder at the lilies white, Nor praise the deep vermilion in the rose. They were but sweet, but figures of delight Drawn after you, you pattern of all those. Yet seemed it winter still, and you away, As with your shadow I with these did play. My guest is Jessica Houghton-Wilson, author of the new book, The Scandal of Holiness, Renewing Your Imagination in the Company of Literary Saints, from Brazos Press. Jessica is a professor at the University of Dallas and has written previously on Walker Percy and Fyodor Dostoevsky. She currently is preparing a manuscript on Flannery O'Connor. Jessica and I discuss Facing the Reality of Our Own Limitations— finding literary saints as exemplars. We talk about Flannery O'Connor, C.S. Lewis, and the influence of G.K. Chesterton on Sigrid unset Please join me as I talk with Jessica Hooten Wilson. <music> Jessica Hooten-Wilson, welcome to Cultural Debris.
0: Thank you, Alan, for having me on.
1: You are all the way in Texas, where I'm sure it's warmer than it is here, although we have a pretty warm day uh, blowing in right now, but rain is on the horizon.
0: Well, actually, I'm in Arkansas, so I'm oh. remotely at the University of Dallas, and gotcha. so I'm a scholar in residence there, so the in residence is a little bit of a misnomer, but um, oh. I, I am a scholar that represents UD, but I'm, I'm in Arkansas.
1: All right, so all right, through the the, the wonders of of the internet, you're just, you're just this disembodied scholar. (laughs) uh,
0: (laughs) I fly in and I I appear in person and get to know everybody there, but I went there for my master's. So I'm familiar with the lay of the land there on campus. So.
1: Well, very good. Well, uh, Arkansas, not quite as warm as Texas, but still pretty warm. (laughs) So um, uh, I, I, I will admit I actually prefer uh, the barbecue in Arkansas because it's more pork based than beef based, but that's just, um, that's just me um i ate at a place in arkansas one time called the dixie pig and it was very good Mm -hmm. Uh, it was some years ago um but uh you you probably don't want to go at length about barbecue so we'll talk about the imagination because you have just written uh, a book about that your new book has just come out the scandal of holiness renewing your imagination in the company of literary saints What is a literary saint?
0: Well, in the Protestant tradition, we do not venerate saints. And yet, what ends up happening, because all human beings are meant to be imitative creatures, right? We were made in the image of God, and then we were called to imitate Christ, and then we're supposed to imitate the people who imitate Christ well without having models, we end up modeling whatever hero is uplifted by the world. And for someone like me who reads a lot of great literature and always have, my heroes who taught me the most about living like Jesus um, have oftentimes been in the pages of books. And so I started thinking, you know, if our, if my tradition, if the Protestant tradition really does need saints as much as the rest of the church does, uh, maybe there are some that we should lift up from those pages. So I'm looking at you know, Fathers Zosima and um, Ransom from the C.S. Lewis trilogy, and some of these great figures who've taught me what it it looks like to follow Jesus.
1: So you talk in the beginning uh, of your of your book in the introduction, you you talk a, a bit about C.S. Lewis and and uh, sort of his, I guess his autobiography of imagination. I guess we can call it yeah, that. That's great. And he. You had a quote that struck me where where he wrote nearly all that I loved I believed to be imaginary mm-hmm. and i think that that probably resonates uh with a lot of the folks who who tend to listen to this podcast that uh you know that that we are uh, we are believers in the moral imagination but that we uh you know sometimes sometimes the imagination seems more true than reality it certainly seems more attractive
0: mm-hmm Yes, you know, what Lewis is talking about is that he was led by his imagination to love certain things, because that's, of course, what the imagination does, is it inculcates within people certain desires uh, for what is beautiful and good and true. And on the other hand, he was looking at reason and he was studying with these professors and teachers who taught him about what was rational. And uh, so on the one side, he said he has like the atoms and he had military and he had utility. And where was the beauty? And he thought that really imaginary became illusory, right? Like it was a um, just illusion or fantasy, and it wasn't part of the real world, which was only rational and only empirical. But as he became a Christian, he realized, no, all the things that he imagined, they were actually glimmers of the truth. They were glimmers of the transcendent, of the supernatural, of the invisible, and even of the invisible things that are here and now, like... Our love for our parents that you can't reason <laughs> through, or our love for our enemies that you can't reason through, but that is um, an imaginary but yet real part of our lives.
1: Is is that really getting to kind of what uh, Lewis, I believe, referred to as as true myth? You know, it's a myth that it, it's a myth, but it's it, but it's more than that, right?
0: Well, yeah, it's so myths being stories, so it, it does in some sense get to that. Stories is a way of knowing and, you know, post enlightenment culture, we do not think of stories as a beneficial way of knowing. We think the only things to know are those which are reasonable or are able to be proven by science and and empiricism. But for thousands of years, people considered story as a method of knowledge. And so that's why he's talking about true myths. These, these stories that could be historically true, a true myth. But also these stories that tell us who we are, such as the Bible, is a true myth.
1: Right. It's this is this is an outworking of the imagination. Uh, what what Burke or my my old boss Russell Kirk wrote a lot about about the the moral imagination. Right. That we are we're seeking to to imagine things rightly and that we're, and you, you kind of talk about how, how our imagination is informed sort of, is it going to be healthy or maybe we'll say moral, uh, or, or unhealthy? What, uh, w- what, can cause that?
0: Yeah. So the malformation of the imagination happens a lot just in the world. And, um, years ago, Flannery O'Connor was, she's one of my mentors <laughs> and her and Russell Kirk, by the way, met, I don't know if you, know. If you knew that.
1: Yes, they did.
0: (laughs) But Felina O'Connor, she was responding to this Life magazine article that said, Who Speaks for America Today? And the Life magazine article was angry because it said, Novelists are some of the richest people in the world, and America is one of the wealthiest countries, and we should be full of happiness. And yet you read these novels, and they they talk about grit and gore and uh, pessimism and What is happening? We need novels to talk about our happy, rich, successful lives. And um, Flannery said, you know, with that mentality, the reason that those people think that, you know, because who's speaking for America today? The advertising agencies. And they're the ones who have formed your imagination to think that if you're rich and successful, then you're happy. And they're the ones who have formed you in such a way that's how you imagine reality to be. But novelists have not been formed that way. Novelists have been formed to dig into despair, to dig into sin, to dig into grit, and to pull from it what is our true human nature, and what were we made for, and why does something feel wrong and off, and why are we exiles in this strange land? And novelists were actually digging deep into what the imagination does best and showing us the truth of things, like dig down underneath the surface for what's real.
1: And, in your book you you talk about the imagination as a way that uh, that that really opens us up to sort of divine direction, mm-hmm. if you will. You got a, a quote that I jotted down: "Our imagination becomes the realm where God meets us first mm-hmm. and shows us more than uh, than tells us mm-hmm. who he is and to what life we have been called. so we're the imagination is a tool that God can use within us if it is well-formed.
0: Yes, absolutely. I, I I very much believe that because, you know, I was thinking a few years ago when Notre Dame Cathedral burned down and how many people, even the people who would argue that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, still recognize something beautiful was being lost in those moments. And I feel like As much as people can argue against good, that good is all relative, and they can argue against truth, that truth is all relative, they can pretend to argue that beauty is all relative. And yet millions of people across the whole world agreed that something beautiful was being lost. So I do think there's a sense in which the beautiful is sometimes that part where God can still talk to us first, where it it evokes something in our soul. I mean, that's why every dystopian movie usually tries to destroy things and make them ugly first. Because if you can really cut that part out of a person, um, then all they're left with is their gut or their brain. And that's easier to control than the heart, which always longs for something beautiful and more.
1: Yeah, I think that that's right. Uh, when we see something truly beautiful, and like you said, that there's there's sort of this rele- relativistic idea that, that beauty is simply in the eye of the beholder. I think a, a truly informed moral imagination would reject that. Now we might have certain tastes that uh, that we that you you might prefer s- some things that I might not. Mm-hmm. But like you said, if we see Notre Dame, we we know that's that's not only beauty, but it is one of the you know great achievements of of mankind mm-hmm. in, in in history that that we have standing before us. And what does it tell us? And of course uh, it, it was built by people who were, who were through their imagination expressing their, uh, their lived out theology, really. Mm-hmm. That, that's, and, and, and it produced this beautiful thing. And so, you know, it's, it's interesting to me that, that idea, um, uh, of beauty being produced by really what we believe, right? And, um, and that i think that that's why moderns uh struggle at producing beauty so much because because what we what we believe has been malformed like you you mm-hmm. talked about
0: yeah we have the the phrase in the beauty of holiness that something the beautiful taps in to something set apart to set it to part of our nature that is not meant for this world but is meant for more than this world uh and so when you have notre dame cathedral like you know you have all these people who are building it who had to imagine the future because when they're laying you know stone by stone they have to have that larger imagination because the stonework itself would probably be very unsatisfying, but it's the imagination that it's about more than them or it's about something that's going to last for hundreds of years or may not even be seen for a hundred years or you know you have to have an imagination that extends beyond yourself
1: one of the one of the i think the, the key elements um, that, that ties together your book. And you talk about this uh, again in, in the beginning of it. Uh, you're, you're quoting Alistair McIntyre who asks uh, or who, who states, one cannot answer what ought I do before knowing of which story I'm a part. And you kind of, you talk about this idea of, of are, are we the hero or even the author of our own story? And that's certainly a very, you know, a very popular, uh, not just not just popular but sort of immediately accepted idea in in modern society that that i you know that i'm telling my story that i can write mm-hmm. whatever i want Uh, am I able to do that? Is that, is that an accurate understanding of my place in the world?
0: Right. Well, no, (laughs) (laughs)
1: um,
0: I I feel like that was a setup. Thank you. I'll, I'll (laughs) I'll swing at it. Um, yeah, you know, you didn't get to decide what time period you're born into. You didn't get to decide who your parents were. You didn't get to decide your gender or your race or any of those things that we try to pretend we can all change and constantly be changing because we want to write our own story, but the reality is you were you were born in you know the 20th or 21st century. Like you weren't born in the 14th. And you would have had a completely different life and story if you were born in a different time period or a different part of the world or or with different biology and God decided all of those things because he was writing your story. And so to say to say different is actually to constantly be fretting or frustrated by all the things that remind you that you didn't write your own story Um, and that no matter how hard you try, you're going to end up rubbing against um, all these plot points that were outside of your control because you can't control most of the elements around you. Um, And that false sense of control, I think, is what leads to a lot of despair. This this idea that, you know, you're not the author.
1: Right, I mean, if if I was writing my own story, I probably would have been, you know, like a a, a wealthy British lord, you know, <laughs> a few hundred years ago. Um, you know, I, I think that I think that that would be a a great uh, a great setting for me, but but alas, mm-hmm. uh, that that is not to be, and so uh, we have to come to terms with that, mm-hmm. and but at the same time you know you are presenting to us this idea that uh that that we need people to imitate so so it's not it's not that if if i'm not in control then i have no control right i mean i i am not simply tossed to and fro right. with uh, uh tied to uh you know tied to this sort of um predetermined destiny over which I, you know, I am helpless.
0: Right. You have agency and will within limitations, but that's actually true freedom exists within limitations. I mean, it's kind of like, do you want everybody to just be able to drive over each other's gardens and you want, you know, no roads and no laws to the, to the road and no, no speed controls. I mean, you want certain limitations to actually have the best driving experience, right? Um, So it's the same with stories. You want certain limitations to produce the best story. And that's what God has in mind, the the story that he's writing is better than the one you could write for yourself. So if you fight against it, you actually end up writing a worse story than to the author. And then suddenly, you find yourself in a in a much better story than you could have envisioned, and um, much grander and more exciting. And that's what uh, George Bernanos calls the adventure of sanctity, right? Like it is it is a much grander quest than the one you're going to make up for yourself.
1: Well, and and one of the I guess the primary uh, quest that you you've laid out for for the entire book, obviously reflecting the title, the scandal of holiness, but that is that we, that, that my goal is uh, God's purpose for me in my story is to become a saint. Yeah. That's the, that's the quest I'm on. Yes. And so how, how do I do that? And so you're giving us these, these different um literary saints to sort of help us help us form our imagination and, um, and our decision-making, I guess, as it were.
0: Yeah, I would think, you know, so this is my this is my fifth book. And my my first one, I don't know that I've ever changed the direction for what I was doing with all these books. They've just come at it in lots of different ways. But in my first book, I was fighting the idea of autonomy, absolute autonomy, where you yourself are the soul. You are the, the god, the rival god of everyone else, right? And that's what you see in Flannery O'Connor, Dostoevsky. and and if that is not the case, then what is the case? Well, the case is that you belong to everyone around you, and that you're a person um, that they belong to you, and you belong to your, your children, and um, you belong to your spouse, and they, you know, your spouse belongs to you. And so there's this more this sense of belonging and community that I really wanted to get at in this book. Um, if we're not autonomous, absolute authorities of our own cosmos, then what does friendship look like in the world with literary saints? What does imitation look like? What does it look like to model those um, that we want to have lives that look like theirs? And so this book was very much aimed at it wanted to feel like a church. I wanted to have as many different figures in the church that we could all look up to together and that we could all be friends with.
1: Right. And you've got um, a a wide diversity of um... Of authors and uh, and novels that you focus on, and of course you recommend others. But mm-hmm. each each chapter focuses um, on a particular on a particular novel, um, and it, it seems to me uh, one of the purposes. Kind of going along with what you just said there, that that one of the purposes of the book is is to draw to draw us into the universal and transcendent, but to do so through these sort of particular angles Mm -hmm. that you're drawing, you're drawing us to these greater things through these, through these particular circumstances. And really that's the only way we can, we can reach that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I highlighted some virtues, you know, as I was working through These different novels. What I realized is, of course, they all kind of come together. It's almost like taking apart a rainbow, right? (laughs) Um, So you take apart this rainbow to see, like, well, what does red really look like? Um, But red is known so well within the whole spectrum of all the different colors. And so it's kind of what I did with sanctity is I, I would take apart one virtue in particular and say, okay, what does it look like to be contemplative? Right? What is that relationship between contemplative and active and um, how does, how does prayer come through in the life of a saint? And and how does my prayer life differ? And maybe what's something I should strive for? And, um, you know, so I did that with the diary of a country priest. And so I kind of, I just tried to highlight these small elements of that sanctity adventure and uh, give us, give us different paths and different, different models who um, image that well for us
1: you start off with with a, a Russian writer Eugene vodalaskin mm-hmm. um, and you've done a lot uh, I know with with your um, with your scholarship on on Russian writers mm-hmm. this is not a popular time to focus on Russian writers mm-hmm. um, you know we see we we see ourselves in some ways uh, it, it seems to me uh, that we're being kind of cut off from kind of our our patrimony right now with with um Russia, all things Russian, um, not, not being, I guess, being canceled as to use the current terminology that they're, they're kind of becoming out of bounds. And that, that seems like a great loss to me.
0: Oh, I hope that's not true. I mean, there's, yeah, I, I very much hope that's not true. If there's nothing more that we should do right now than actually read Russian writers, I will say Eugene Vodoloshkin was born in Ukraine and he was taught in Ukrainian schools. Um, so he should also, (laughs) he should be also one of the people we are very much reading and putting forth. Sure. Sure. Um, I would also say, you know, I, I, did a book on Solzhenitsyn too, and Solzhenitsyn was a true Russian and he was looking at those who misused Russia and he's writing against them for the sake of Russia. I would hope people would realize that with great Russian literature, that it is, it is showing you what true Russia looks like and not, um, the hands of a dictator and, and Putin, of course, you know, there's all those stories about was he adopted and was he actually a Georgian orphan the way that Stalin was a Georgian orphan and not really Russian. And, um, you know, it's hearsay. So it does that part, I guess, doesn't really matter, but it matters what he's doing with the role that he's in. Um, in the same way that I wouldn't want to castigate Germans just because you had Hitler come into power or castigate Italians because Mussolini was in power or castigate Americans for – Different leaders we've had that maybe we all didn't agree with doesn't mean that we should uh, decry all American things.
1: Yeah, I would I would hope that um, that that a well informed moral imagination mm-hmm. would uh, would lead us to be able to to make those distinctions and yeah. to recognize um, that these these godly transcendent uh, these uh, these these principles of holiness that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, that are reflected from these from these work, these great works, uh, whether it be literature or music mm-hmm. or whatever, that that those are the principles that break through that kind of uh, aggression and tyranny, and 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 what we have to have in order to push it back and to and to have a to have a a world more consistent with with what God would want us to have.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we look through throughout all of history, you're going to have these same kinds of problems where I mean, the world is full of sinners. You know, there's there's lots of sinners that were in the south, but we should still read southern literature and um you know, the founding fathers had lots of sins, you know, slavery, etc., but they still were able to by the grace of God make an amazing constitution, you know. Um and so we have to be able to discern and and wisely judge the, the products of art that you know that a culture creates apart from the sinful human beings. I mean, <laughs> look at the Bible. I mean, <laughs> case in point, you have um, the murderer of Saint Stephen who's writing the letters that we read. So, should we not read the letters of Paul because they were written by someone who condoned the murder of Stephen?
1: <laughs> right. I mean, <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, you make the point. Um, in talking about sort of these you know the the hagiographies that are sometimes sort of syrupy sweet um mm-hmm. uh, that uh present these flawless figures that that that's that that's not what you're doing and and that ultimately of course those are not really helpful uh to us but but it is a realization that uh for me to become a saint as god would want me to be that i uh, that I have to recognize the reality of not just sin, but my own and and seek to, oh, well, to cooperate with God in the overcoming of that, yes. I guess I should yes. say.
0: Yeah, to the relinquishing. I mean, that's the... Um... The wonderful thing about what God's called us to is that it is universal, and uh, there's been great Catholic writers on this. De Lubach or von Balthasar is probably one of my favorites on this, where he, you know, he talks about special versus customary sanctity. But a lot of that's not decided until you're gone, right? Um, but really, it's a matter of all of us pursuing it or listening for that call. And that's why Paul addresses all of his letters to the saints in each church, you know, saints in Ephesus, the saints in Corinth. Well, you read the letters and the people in Corinth and in Ephesus were not what we would consider saints. Um, But he does not hesitate to say to the saints in that church because he recognizes it as a call, even if those people were in process in their sanctity. And so a lot of what I'm writing is I'm writing about all of the saints of the church, like ourselves, who were in process in sanctity. Um, and we're in greater degrees of that across uh, each of our individual stories.
1: Yeah, and I think that that um, that I think that that gets back to one of the one of the problems that we have in in sort of the current atmosphere, I guess, which is that there is this this expectation demand, particularly on past figures that that they should have been uh, perfect or living up to, you know, this ideal or that ideal. But, but it it seems to me that it's a lack of, I guess, self-awareness that none of us live up to our ideal, or if we do that, perhaps our ideal isn't ideally what it ought to be, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's, I mean, the saints are those who achieved that sanctification in life. Um, but what I love Sigrid Unsutt's hagiographies because she always shows the early stages where, uh, you know, some saints were saints from the time that they were born. I mean, you look at Catherine of Siena or something that from the time she was very small. Um, but other saints, it took them a while. It took them 20, 30 years, you know, wrestling with their own will versus God's will before he completely took over them. Um, and, and so I think all of us are just, again, on different stages. And that's why I loved writing this book, is that you have some figures, the Diary of a Country Priest is so holy pretty much throughout the entire narrative. And then you have other characters like Kristen Lovren's daughter, who is not until the very end of her life, um, reaving, you know, receiving that sanctity at the end. You're listening to the Cultural Debris Podcast.
1: There's a quote uh, that you had that I, um, I don't think I'd seen before with uh, from Orwell in his review of that hideous strength where he says, unfortunately, the supernatural keeps breaking in. And uh, that that's that may be my favorite quote from the from, uh, from the whole book, because, uh, you know, yeah, yes, it does. It, it does keep breaking in. And I know, you know, he's and you you even agreed with some of his some of his critique there about um, about that hideous strength as a work. But at the same time, That's exactly what Lewis is trying to show us, and what what, and I think what these books are trying to show us.
0: Yes, absolutely, is that the supernatural keeps breaking in? Well, that and that's why I love um, some of these writers. I mean, you know, when you look at the history of literature, so I do a lot of um, great books. So I read all the way back to you know the pagan writers, the pagan ancient classical writers, and so you read Virgil and Homer and so forth, um, and they're pre-Christian. And so we look for the ways in which they got the partial truth, but not the whole truth. And then you have these great Christian writers of the early church, and the middle ages, and you can read them with a certain light, but the whole world all agreed with them and they all shared the same assumptions in the Western church. And, um, and then of course that breaks apart a little bit and you start having this increase of modernism and rationalism and literature and we lose great Christian literature for several hundred years actually. And, um, a lot of it is either social reform in the British novels, but, but where's the supernatural? Where's where's Jesus in those, you know, great British novels, or um, maybe they're in the Russian novels. That's probably where I found it the most. But, and then we have the 20th century and that's why I focused on it. The 20th century is not pagan writers like the Greeks and Romans looking for God. Um, and it's not Western middle ages where you have the church all agrees with what you're saying. And Dante can write a certain way because his audience agrees with him. Um, you have these writers who are, having to show the supernatural breaking in to a world that assumes the supernatural doesn't exist. And that's why you have Flannery O'Connor and Walker Percy writing the way they they do, or C.S. Lewis, Um, they have to show it intruding and reminding you that it's there because the world insists on, you know, like Nietzsche said, that God is dead and they're showing he's alive. And that's what's so shocking about um, these 20th century novels in particular that I kind of focused on.
1: Right, and I think you know why. Why you get such pushback, and why, of course, at their best, uh, writers like Flannery are are aggressively pushing back themselves. She mm-hmm. was not one to uh, to with, withhold her opinion, uh, so she so she pushed back, and and that's really what you want the moral imagination to do.
0: Yeah, I mean, she says um, you have to push as hard as the age that pushes against you.
1: So getting back to uh, a theme that you talk about in that hideous strength, uh, which is, uh, you know, is such a wonderful Mm -hmm. novel and so completely modern and relevant, Mm -hmm. um, even though, you know, some of the, some of the dated references come through, but the things that Lewis saw and understood and portrayed, you know, really speak to, 2022 pretty powerfully yes but you talk about this idea that he's developing and of course is is very important to the church is the idea of individualism versus community and Mm -hmm. and also bad community and good community which he which he brings out um so uh you know you 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 ask this question how does a community lead a person toward holiness Mm -hmm. Um, how, how does it, how, how is a, a community going to do that?
0: Yeah. And that's why I think we need the novel because the novel imagines it for us, right? Like, so we can, we can look at this visual of what a great community would look like versus a, a one that would malform us. And so you have um, Bellberry versus St. Anne's and Bellberry is a place where nothing grows. Um, everything is cemented. Everything is fake. Everything is fake trees and fake plants and Um, you have animals in cages, right? The whole, there's no, there's no wilderness, there's no roaming, there's no garden, there's no, um, freedom for the animals. There's no taking care of God's creation. And in that world, you have no dissenting voices allowed. Everyone has to be on the same page. Everyone has to say the same things and think the same things. And, um, it's actually a lot of the time you're talking nonsense or you're talking in sound bites rather than having actual dialogue. So you see a community there that is destructive and of course leads to violence. And uh, the people in it are little more than zombies and they don't even realize it. Um, Whereas on the other side, you have St. Anne's and even the name of course, St. Anne's, but it's, it's a home. There's a group of people and they all take turns playing different roles in the community that they're in they work with each other, they treat each other equally. Um they
1: are You even have a bear? Yeah,
0: you have animals <laughs> and like there there's friendship with the animals which I just really love. I mean it's very St Francis, you know, like preaching to the birds and the birds preach to you and um just a real regard I guess for our place as as stewards in this huge garden and just kind of imagining um, seeing the biblical worldview come to life in the 20th century, and uh, the edu- even you know the education, you talk about Jane like wants to. She lives in that world for a moment. She spends like a weekend at Saint Anne's, and suddenly she wants to read Shakespeare's sonnets again and go listen to Bach, and she wants to eat you know buttered toast, and so it's just all of the um, the great delights that the earth has given us, and that God has given us, and that we share with one another. So, so you see a picture of what that community is. You imagine it and and you take that away from that novel and want to to see it happen in your in your actual world
1: yeah that for her that's uh, russell kirk wrote about what what he called timeless moments that's mm-hmm. is you know that you're that you you find yourself transcending simply chronological time you're sort mm-hmm. of you're sort of uh, brought into a timelessness really that is that is informed by the divine and that's really what what she experiences there and what, Mm -hmm. you know, hopefully (laughs) that that we will be led to experience at at different times when that supernatural breaks into our life.
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. And that you, you're able to share that with the people around you. I mean, that's what was great about St. Anne's is um, they don't try to force anyone into their community. Everything's an invitation, right? It's all about hospitality and invitation. I think that's the heart of great community.
1: I think that's right. You know, of course we struggle now i think with with the idea of of community uh, obviously you know we not only deal with sort of the atomization of individualism but we're we interact with each other so much uh through through social media and uh you know, virtual communities, which I think do have their place and do have their value, but uh, they can't ultimately be full replacements for the real thing, I don't think.
0: Right. Yeah. No, you need the in-person. We need to be able to um, to hug one another, and to—I um, think of Ivan Karamazov. He, he's always like saying that he couldn't stand people next to them because they smell. <laughs> Adults, <laughs> and of course, that's you know 19th century Russian. But we really, you know, you really do—you need to know like what people smell like and look like and their faces they make and what they sound like. And um, there's just so much to the embodied experience that um, when we lose that, I, I feel like we start relating to each other in these partial and transactional ways rather than in fully embodied modes.
1: Yeah. And I think that that, that too has led to, uh, sort of the cancel culture idea mm-hmm. online where, because we're not, we become abstractions to one another, um, yeah. rather than, than actual people who, you know, who have, uh, feelings and who have friends and who have family and children and parents and just all of those things.
0: Yeah. You know, the, in the social media world is, um, it's such a strange place, but I, and I've only been on there two years now, um like on online really heavily and um i I have found what is striking is how much if you reach out to people more one on one and not performative, you know, like let's say you're in an argument online, just I would step back from that argument and write that person one on one, and usually you can save <laughs> people's feelings and emotions and hearts um rather than try to perform your apology or perform your argument or. Um, any of these ways that, that make us perform for one another, you're, you're wearing a mask and you're actually losing so much of who you are to act that way, you know, and pretend that that's a relationship rather than the one-on-one, which I think can actually salvage those things.
1: I was, uh, I discovered something that I hadn't known before you, uh... Well, many things, but one thing that struck out, (laughs) that that jumped out to me when I was uh, reading about Sigrid Unsaid uh, was that she was influenced by G.K. Chesterton, which I I had not been aware of before.
0: Yeah, and uh, Robert Hugh Benson. Um, She was in, her, her and her husband were visiting England, and what I would love to know is if I could get some record of her actually sitting in on some of his lectures, because um, there's all these reports that like she heard him give talks, and I cannot, for the life of me, because a lot of her stuff is in Norwegian, um, get to hear exactly like where were you? I know it was 1913, but um, but I just think that's fascinating that she was so influenced by Chesterton, and so was Dorothy Sayers and a lot of other writers at that time. Um, but his, you know, his apologetics and his style and and the way he was so full of life, I think. It was Dorothy Sayers who said something like, um, oh, I'm going to get it wrong, but she she essentially called him like this life bomb or something like where he just like explodes into your presence and just blows out all the dust in the room. I mean, he just made everything feel like it came to life.
1: But it's such a tremendous um, and I guess I guess we might think kind of random influence that he would have on her of course, she eventually would become Catholic, as you write about. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you you have to you have to think that this is one of those this is one of those um instances of the supernatural breaking in, right? Why why would Sigurd Unset be hearing G. K. Chesterton yeah. of all people? Yeah,
0: yeah. I, I that's what, I love looking at all these stories because a lot of these authors, that that is the way it is. They were so influenced by other writers that came before them and um and her work, Sigurd Unset's work, she was at the same time, roughly as Edith Stein. So then you have St. Edith Stein giving out her novels to the novices as they were coming in (laughs) um, and saying, you know, if you want to read, if you want to learn the secret of holiness, read Sigurd unset novels. Um, I just, I find that fascinating. And then of course, you have people like Chesterton and Lewis, they're writing novels to encourage people towards the pursuit of holy. So it, you know, it's a, it's an art that we've lost this idea that, reading the fiction could actually be a church practice, could be a spiritual practice.
1: Yeah. I mean, talking about Lewis again, uh, you know, he moves from sort of his, his apologetic and, and directly didactic writing that he did uh, sort of during world war II and so forth. He gave his you know radio talks and that sort of thing, but he moves into writing fiction that, that he just kind of abandons um, that, that previous apologetic writing, for the most part, mm-hmm. and and turns to writing fiction instead, and that's it, it's a, it's a fascinating thing.
0: Well, I, I mean, he does both, but he also recognizes the two different roles. I mean, the imagination works well with the intellect, but the imagination gives us an image that the intellect can talk about. So, in experiment and criticism, which is one of his later uh, prose pieces, his more of his didactic piece, he's saying, you know, I I. I don't need the literary criticism as much as I need the novel. And then the criticism is dependent on the novel. So the novel exists even without the criticism. Right. Um, And I think he would see his his own work in that same vein that if you read that hideous strength, I don't know how much you need abolition of man, but abolition of man can elucidate that hideous strength for you. Right. So you have the imagination, oh, absolutely. It, you know, it's gripped by the story, it's gripped by the images, and then the Abolition of Man then explains what he's doing with those images.
1: Right. Yes, they they are very much uh, companion pieces. Mm-hmm. and uh, But but I will. I will say that uh, that hideous strength's more fun to read, um, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, of, yeah. of the two of them. But but they're both but they're both valuable.
0: Well, and I think that's you know that's something that Lauren Winter pointed out with my book is that I'm arguing for the necessity of reading fiction, and yet my book isn't is an argument. I mean, it's, a, it's, <laughs> it's an argument about the need to read fiction. So, um, but I I do believe that you have the teaching role, you have the conversation role. Um, but I just think it's secondary. I mean, my book wouldn't exist without the, all the novels that I'm writing about.
1: Right. And she talks, uh, she mentions, um, uh, in, in her foreword about, uh, her, her professor who confesses that, that she no longer read novels and how stunned she was by that. Oh. And, uh, and that understandably so, because I think you miss so much.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you, you kind of go backwards in time. You become like a Mr. Collins and Jane Austen or something, right? Like <laughs> this person that just misses, misses all the fun and the joy and, um, misses the spirit of the thing, right. And focuses too much on the letter, you know, but the le- right. the letter kills <laughs> and the spirit gives life. So you, in some sense, you need to have that reawakening of the imagination that happens in fiction. Yeah, and I think,
1: you know, again, talking about the supernatural breaking through, I think that that's where it's going to happen. It's unlikely uh, to happen as much in a, you know, in a biblical commentary, say, as useful as those are. And I and I have a bunch of them around here, but um, that's... You can you can gain knowledge and facts, but you can't always gain. You, you don't you don't have the supernatural breaking in in quite the same way.
0: Yeah, you know the story again. the The criticism relies on the Bible, and the Bible is the story. Um, most of the Bible is not criticism. You do have Paul's letters that explain the salvation story, but they are reliant on the life of Christ, which is the Gospels. Right. So,
1: um, I want to shift gears a little bit, Mm -hmm. but talk about somebody you, you touch on and that's Flannery O'Connor. I know that you were doing some, uh, doing some work on, on her, um, her piece that, or her unfinished piece that she did, uh, was the heathen rage. And I was wondering if what, what the status of that was, what you could tell us about your work with, uh, on Flannery O'Connor.
0: Yeah, sure. Well, I, uh, Lord willing, that'll come out next year. Um, and it's, she was working on a novel and, uh, she started working on it possibly as early as 1962. I'm of the opinion. It was more likely a little bit later than that, but, um, but she only worked on it a couple of years before she passed and she was trying to get at some of these new ways of writing. Um, Post-television is the way that I can put it best. So she got a, a television into her home in 1960 and um, JFK was assassinated on the TV in her living room. And so here's a woman who writes about violence and who writes the shocking, the supernatural breaking in, but usually in a very violent means. And um, what happens in that case, when you have historically JFK break, you know, dying in your living room, so to speak, then all of a sudden she's like, I have to write differently. I have to find a new way to write the same kind of stories that I was telling before. And so the, the novel that she works on, she's having to be slow. She's having to be meditative. She wants to be that still small voice um, in which God speaks to Elijah and he comes to him in the cave rather than in the shocking and violent way she had before.
1: Interesting. Well, uh, I look forward to uh, to seeing that. Uh, who's who will be uh, publishing that? I
0: have to wait and see. Um, I, okay, all of it's in negotiation right now, and that's gotcha. I have to say, Lord willing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm I'm sure that there there will be uh, many interested uh, parties about that. Well, I I want to conclude with with something from your conclusion that kind of addresses that, and you. So novels introduce us to the ways of imagining God already at work in our hearts, present in the world, transforming and sanctifying his creation all the time. And I, I think that that, that's a very powerful thing because sometimes God can seem very far away in our modern world, but mm-hmm. novels help to make us aware that he's there.
0: Yes, absolutely. I, you know, God is the great storyteller and, um, we, that's how we come to know God. I mean, we, we have the book of creation and we have the book of scriptures and those are the ways that we, we come to know who he is.
1: Well, Jessica, I appreciate you being on and, uh, let, let people know where they can find you online and, uh, and access your, uh, information about you and your social media and so forth.
0: Sure. Um, I have a website, JessicaHootenWilson.com and I also have a YouTube, which is where I, I was sometimes giving my lectures uh, via YouTube. Um, and then also online at Twitter. So we can, we can talk to each other, um, at Hooten Wilson.
1: All right. Very good. And I will, I will provide links to those things. And, uh, and of course your book is The Scandal of Holiness and it is, uh, I assume available where all fine books are sold. Yes, it is.
0: Absolutely. Thanks.
1: All right. Well, thank you very much for being on. I enjoyed it. And uh, you introduced me to some books that I need to add to my reading list. So I'm looking forward to that. That's my mission
0: in life is reading lists. Uh,
1: I I absolutely certainly need more books on my to to read list. But hey, why not? (laughs) Thank you. Thanks a lot, Jessica.